All right, please take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Luke 21. God's perspective on giving. Not covering many verses tonight. I'll make up for it next time as we try to get through the rest of Luke 21. Ambitious. We're considering a very small portion of Scripture this evening in Luke, which covers a very large principle found throughout the Word of God. The relationship between the follower of God and money has always been an interesting one. The relationship has historically, if I can describe it this way, been one of tension. A couple of weeks ago, we considered the concept of taxation. With Jesus saying, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. The simple truth of the matter is that currency is an entirely physical, an entirely material, an entirely temporal concept. Money, and more specifically the things that can be bought with money, uh, are so very high up on the human priority list and so very far down on the spiritual priority list. And because of this, the relationship of this material necessity to the Christian can be constraining, confusing, even contentious. But it really doesn't need to be, and indeed it should not be. As long as we share God's perspective on the purpose of things, on the purpose of the things which we have on this, in this life, of the things which are upon this earth, when we understand that the things of this earth, though temporal and fitted for eventual destruction, really can be powerful tools in our hands to reflect deeper eternal principles of the kingdom of God, it can become empowering and encouraging rather than confusing, constraining, rather than that tension. And this is what we're going to see today as we walk through the first few verses of Luke 21. Verses 1 and 2, the Bible tells us this, And he looked up and saw the rich man, men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor wo- widow, Casting in thither two mites. Remember where we are in time. Jesus is in the final few days of his pre-resurrection life upon this earth. He is daily in the temple, the scriptures tell us, teaching his disciples, his followers of the kingdom. So he's in the temple. We'll find next week that in the days, every day for this week, effectively, he's in the temple. And every evening he goes to the Mount of Olives. The Bible does not tell us what he's doing every evening at the Mount of Olives as far as Luke is concerned, but we might guess that it's the same thing he's doing that last night in the, uh, on the Mount of Olives, which is praying. And so Jesus is in the temple, and he's teaching men the gospel of the kingdom. Luke 20 was devoted to the conflicts, recall, between Jesus and various groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Herodians. And so Luke 20 was, was about all of those different conflicts that came up until the point where last week Jesus shut, shut them down and they said, we don't want to ask him anything else. Well, that conflict portion is over. And, and in this portion, we're turning our eyes toward other principles, At some point, Jesus is in the temple. He's been teaching, whatever the case may be. And he sits across from the treasury box where they would bring their tithes and offerings and such. 
Now, how many times in Luke have we seen strong contrasts used to, to drive points to their intended end? Jesus has used these regularly in a parable form, right? The parable of the widow and the unjust judge. You take the most vulnerable person in society and perhaps the, the strongest person in society, and Jesus used them as the contrast to drive home a point. Then we saw the fair parable of the publican and the Pharisee. You take perhaps what, what Jews would consider the least moral person in society, or at least among them, and then the most moral person in society, and you contrast them one with another in order to draw out a specific point. Well, here we find a strong contrast, but this contrast is not in parable form. This contrast is in historical form. This is something that actually happened, but we're still going to see a dramatic contrast that's going to help us drive home a particular point. Consider the setting with me. Jesus is among a group of people watching as men and women come to give money into the treasury. It may be that, in a sense, this was part of a much larger survey of the temple grounds. We'll find out next week, in parallel to what we could read in particularly Matthew 24, that Jesus is overlooking the temple and the disciples are bragging to him about the beauty of the temple, right? We're going to get into that more, not next week because we have a guest speaker, but the week after we'll dig into that a little bit more. So Jesus is perhaps walking, doing this survey. The disciples are showing him things. And maybe that's when he stops for a moment to sit down and to watch this giving box for a little bit and the people coming up to give their gifts. In the verses that follow, the disciples, as I mentioned, would begin bragging um, about the temple. And they were very proud of what had been built there. Of course, Herod had been a big part of that. Uh, it's called, in fact, in history, Herod's Temple because the little temple that had been built by Zerubbabel in the days before the intertestamental period and then had been uh, maintained throughout the intertestamental period, it was very humble, and Herod decided to make it something very grand, something magnificent, something beautiful, and indeed he did so. This project, at the point that Jesus was touring it, was still not finished. In fact, it would not be finished until just... Just a few years before Rome would come in, burn the whole place up, and tear it all to the ground, brick by brick. So uh, it is still in construction at this point, but they are just marveling at the beauty of this temple. And this is, this is that same time that we're seeing here. So Jesus is watching, and he's watching as rich men are coming in, and they're casting their gifts into the treasury. And we've spoken from time to time about various currencies, right? A talent is actually a measure by weight that we would see. A penny or a denarian, denarius, uh, being about a day's wage. We saw that one a little while ago. A mite, which is what we find in this passage here. It's called uh, in Rome a lepton was the smallest coin in the Roman economy. So effectively what we would call a penny today. Of course, uh, in, in our King James English, they're using um, English currencies and, what, and such, which is where all of these, these are coming from. According to Mark's record of this event, which we'll consider more in just a moment, two mites made one farthing. Uh, again, that's an English measurement uh, in order to give us a little bit of, uh, of, a, of an idea of the, the currency there. Suffice it to say that two mites is not much money economically speaking. It's not a great deal of money. As the rich men were coming and putting their money in, uh, you would not be necessarily counting it in, in single-digit mites, right? The idea here is that this is not much money, but we'll see as we continue that this is not the emphasis that Jesus lays upon it. 
While it was not much money economically, it was much money to this woman. And that's what Jesus is going to focus on. And in this, we're going to see the principle, which I'm going to teach you in a little bit, or remind you of in a little bit. Uh, for greater context on this event, let's consider just briefly the Mark account as well. In Mark chapter 12, verses 41 and 42, the Bible says this, And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much... And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farling. The contrast between um, the widow and the others becomes a bit more clear in Mark. It is not just that the rich men were giving, but these rich men really were casting in much money. That in contrast with this widow woman, uh, they were casting in much, and she cast in very little and Jesus feels compelled to remark upon this contrast and on this gift. Not, however, let's be clear, the gift of the rich people, but rather the gift of this widow woman. And just this perspective should begin to fundamentally wire or perhaps rewire the way that we look at money and the way that we understand giving. Take a moment and consider what we are reading here. Before I even begin to go to the principles of Scripture on giving and what, it, what, what the Bible says about it, it's really not a mystery. We don't have to wonder about God's perspective on giving. Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, is about to, to tell us His perspective on what He's seeing, on those who gave money and on how much they gave. So we read in verses 3 and 4 of our text in Luke 21. And he said, Of a truth I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. Take a minute to think about that. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God. But she of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had. From a divine perspective, this widow woman had given more on that day than anyone else. Though she economically, physically, materially had very little money, far less than any of the wealthy had given. And then Jesus describes why he saw things this way. Because these rich people gave out of their abundance. But this widow woman gave out of her necessity. The one group gave out of their excess. And to this degree, the gift, while still a gift, was actually of no sacrifice. This woman, Jesus says here, gave of her living. Not of her abundance, of her living. This woman needed those two mites to live. She was a poor woman. That word penury means poverty. It's the word as the English translates penury. It's also the word in the Greek, poverty. And when she gave those two mites to the temple by proxy to the Lord, it was not the amount that she had earned above what she needed. She chose to give of the temple that which she needed. 
May I say that again? She did not give to the Lord of the amount that she had above what she needed. She gave to the Lord what she needed to live. In fact, if we're to take Jesus' words literally, she cast into that treasury all the living that she had. For how long, we don't know. Maybe the day, maybe the, the Bible doesn't tell us. But this woman, in order to give unto the Lord, gave to the temple. And this woman, in order to give to God, took something away from herself to give to the Lord. And this is the principle. This is the theme of these four verses. This is the point. If you want to know how God looks at giving, it's an extension of worship, and Jesus here lays it out for you. That woman gave more than they all because she gave of her living, whereas the rest gave of their abundance. In order to give to God, to show Him worth, to bless His name, this woman did this thing. Now, that's all the text we're going to consider this evening in Luke 21, but the principle that surrounds these verses are many. I'm going to give you six uh, principles this evening, and I'm going to break them into three general categories for us that we're going to talk about together. And first, I want to talk about money. We're going to start foundationally with money. In regard to money, the Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil, And it's always important to have a balance when we approach the concept of money in the Bible. The New Testament is very hard on the wealthy in this world. But take note that as I give you examples of this from the scriptures, these examples are not hard against wealth. They're actually hard against those who have wealth. You'll see this theme throughout. It's actually all of the the, the speaking here is not speaking against Money, it's speaking against those who have money. And we'll lay this out more, so stay with me. There's a big difference here. Jesus said, and we studied this a couple of months ago in Luke 18, verses 24 and 25, when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful and he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through uh, a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And we explained that when we were there. If you're interested in in the the more in-depth and you weren't here for that or you don't remember, I'd encourage you to go back online and listen to that message again. We get far more insight into the New Testament principle of wealth from James. And um, James says this in uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Notice linking here of the wealthy man to his deeds. We're not talking about wealth, and we're not even actually talking about the person, but we're talking about what wealth does to the person. Stay with me. We'll, we'll, we'll clean this up in a little bit. Uh, James, for, for all that he's hard on the wealthy here, it gets even worse in James chapter 5. He says this in verses 1 through 6. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that, ye, that shall come upon you. 
Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasures together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them... Uh, which, ha which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just. And he, that would be the just, doth not resist you. Notice James connects here the wealthy to oppression and to wanton pleasure. This is the focal point of wealth in the Bible. This is where the negativity in the Bible surrounding wealth lies. It's not in the existence of wealth. It is not even in having wealth. It is not in the existence of wealthy people. It is the priorities, the methods, and the tactics that often lend themselves to the desire to accumulate wealth and to having the lifestyle of the wealthy. The problem is not wealth. It is not wrong to be wealthy. It is not sinful to be wealthy. It is not sinful to have things and to have money. The problem is the human heart as it relates to wealth. The human heart as it relates to wealth. And this is why the whole argument that the Bible is against money is invalid. And this is why the argument that the Bible teaches some sort of communal sell everything that you have and then pool your resources and spread them um, among so that everybody owns everything and nobody owns anything type idea is, is not biblical. The communism, socialism angle is terribly invalid in the scriptures. In fact, the, the philosophies are polar opposites, though they happen to share some similar evidence to support their conclusions. That communism, socialism idea from the scriptures, that communal idea from the scriptures, and I lot them together because they're fundamentally the same thing. This teaches that man is inherently good and that the existence of money, of an inconsistent distribution of wealth among people groups is the fundamental problem in society. They, they, they teach in this philosophy that income inequality is the cause of crime and of poverty, of drug abuse, of physical abuse, of all of these things. That it is the, the fact of money itself that, that lends uh, people to, or the, of not having this money, and other people having it, the haves and the have-nots, that lend itself to this rift in society. Because people are desperate, and desperate people do desperate things. And if they were not desperate, they wouldn't do those things. To this end, they believe if wealth is redistributed from the wealthy to the poor, if nobody owns anything because everybody owns everything, everyone gets the same amount of everything, then all the problems and ills of society go away. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something very different, although it uses some of the same evidence. The Bible teaches not that man is inherently good, and this is the fundamental difference. The Bible teaches that man is inherently bad. Recall when I read that humanistic, the Humanist Manifesto 1 and 2 this morning, written in 1933 and then subsequently 1973, that we saw that idea that, that the humanist, the religious humanist recognizes that man is naturally good and that, that um, religion in its traditional form and dogma hinders man from reaching his whole potential. 
And so we have that on the one side, and that's the one philosophy, which is that man is inherently good, and that absent all things, man will tend toward the good. And then we have the biblical philosophy, which says man is inherently bad, that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, that we are sinners. And so the Bible teaches that wealth is a privilege, and that with that privilege comes responsibility. But... Because mankind's heart is so easily corrupted, wealth has a tendency to turn the hearts of men away from these responsibilities and toward himself, and towards self-gain, and towards self-desires. That wealth is a corrupting influence in the heart of men, drawing them away from the principles of God and luring them into deeper levels of injustice by luring them into selfishness and self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. In other words, the problem is not money, but the problem is how the human heart responds to having money. Now, to this end, we find the ideas, this communal socialistic idea, and the truths of the Bible, in fact, in different corners. Not because both don't recognize that money has an inherent capacity to corrupt, but because on the one end, as I mentioned, The communal socialistic idea sees mankind as being good outside of the the problems of wealth, that, that, that wealth inequality is stifling man's natural goodness. And the Bible sees money as a problem because it inspires man's natural self centeredness. So, where do I want to go with this point? Good question. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a pastor. And he says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us us be there with content. But they that will be rich, will be rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. So the point of Paul's words here, written to Timothy, is that great gain comes from godliness with contentment. That joy in this life is not found in money, but found in contentment regardless of wealth. That having the basics, which, by the way, God has promised us in in Matthew chapter 6, we should be content. And notice the warning. Again, it's not a warning to those who have money. It's not a warning that if you have money, you are evil. It's not, that's not what the Bible says. But the Bible says that they that will be rich, they that desire riches, they that pursue riches, they who place their heart upon riches, they who set their mind and their goal upon accumulating wealth, these fall into a temptation. Again, it doesn't mean that they fall into sin, but they fall into a temptation, a snare, There is an added level of temptation that comes to otherwise righteous men through a desire for money. And it propels them. The temptation is to foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
The idea there being that it causes men to err from the faith, that it causes men to pursue those things which are counter to the principles of the word of God. To place the desire for money above their desire to pursue God, and in doing so, the scriptures say, pierce themselves through with many sorrows. But the man of God, specifically in this case the minister of God, is called to pursue different priorities. He's called to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. And while the wealthy man absolutely can pursue these things just fine. Firstly, a wealthy man's battle to pursue these virtues will be greater because of his heart's natural response to wealth. Secondly, the pursuit of these things can often come in direct conflict with life choices that are necessary to become wealthy. On the case of a minister, the desire for wealth can lead a minister in all sorts of negative directions, right? Number one, it can reduce his capacity and his zeal for the word of God because he's busy trying to earn money. Number two, it can change the way I preach to try to keep people in the seats and particularly to keep the wealthy among us happy. So the, 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 the desire for wealth and the pursuit of wealth is particularly dangerous the more you have yielded yourself to the principles of the word of God. But even among us, even among those who, who we have here, uh, where the economics vary dramatically from one to another, those who are more economically sound, those who are more well off, even to those who in our midst who are wealthy, with each step of wealth, there becomes a greater danger, a higher responsibility, which if the Lord has led a man to, to pursue is absolutely fine. But he has to guard his heart. He has to guard his heart all the greater against the lures and the temptations that can come with having wealth. Because to become wealthy in this world, oftentimes you're encouraged to play by the world's rules. And the world's rules are not rules of virtue. To this end, Agur wrote in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 and 9 through 9. He says, Two things have I required of thee. This is a prayer unto the Lord. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Agur pray, prays, Lord, just let me live and love you. Give me enough so that I'm not tempted to steal and in doing so blaspheme your name. And give me not too much lest I become self-sufficient and deny thee. And this is his prayer. Now again, and I want to keep re-emphasizing re this. A, a rich man is not living in sin at all. But the temptation to live in self-sufficiency, and this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, right? Not many wealthy, not many noble, not many mighty are called. Why? Because if a man is very strong, then he doesn't feel as though he needs God's strength. If a man is very smart, he doesn't think he needs God's knowledge. If a man is very wealthy, he doesn't think he needs God's provision. If I have enough money so that when I get sick, I can just plunk down the money and go to the doctor anytime I want and get the best treatments that the world has to offer, I'm less likely to say, Lord, heal me. 
I'm less likely to get down on my knees when I have a need and say, God, will you provide this need for me if I can just plunk down the money for what I need? So there is a battle for self-sufficiency that will rage more in the hearts of the wealthy. But not just the wealthy, in the hearts of the wise, in the hearts of, of, of the intelligent, in the hearts of the mighty, in the hearts of the noble. It's easier for me to go into the jail and to convince someone at their lowest that they need Christ than it is for me to walk into the White House and convince someone that they need Christ. It's easier for me to knock on doors in the projects and convince them that they need Christ than if I go to the multi-million dollar homes, knock on their doors, and convince them they need Christ. Why is that? Because those that are mighty, noble, honorable, wealthy, don't need anything, and so they struggle to see their need for Christ. Their need for God, their need for His provision, their need for His daily sustenance. Now praise God that He has raised up Christian businessmen, wealthy, wealthy men and women who are believers. They do so much for the church. They, there's so much capacity there. But they are also on shakier ground. They, they, they face temptations that some of us don't have to face as far as self-sufficiency. And that's the idea. This is what the scriptures are telling us. I hope I've made that clear. I hope it makes sense. The love of money, and I underline that word love is the root of all evil. It is not money that's the problem. It is when you crave money, when you desire money, when you're willing to place the pursuit of money above the pursuit of the things of the Lord, that money becomes a problem. Principle number two. Devotion to the material is a misuse of the material. Paul gives a very interesting principle in 1 Corinthians 7. He's speaking about the decision either to marry or to remain unmarried as a virgin in this world. And his perspective on the issue is, is really amazing because I almost want to call it pragmatic, meaning it relies upon experience rather than upon principle. But, but in reality, it's actually more like the experience of the moment filtered through a principle as we read it. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 25. We'll read through verse 28. He says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound unto a wife? If you are, are already married, seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? You're not not married, seek not a wife. Don't seek to be married. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. But I spare you. So Paul states his own judgment here, which we know he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which tells us that he does have the Lord's blessing, the Lord's sanction in what he's saying, right? This is yet inspired scripture. And under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says it is good, especially in the time that they were in, which was a time of great distress, persecution for the church at large in Corinth, for people to remain unmarried. Now, this did not mean marriage is wrong, but just meant that there was a spiritual and a practical benefit in that time and in that culture for these men and women not to be married. And to this end, Paul conceded that those who get married, though not having sinned, would have what he calls here trouble in the flesh. Now, the direct meaning of this has to do with persecution. 
that in a time of distress and danger, a family makes it harder to make the hard choice. That in a time of distress and persecution, it's more difficult for me to be willing to be thrown in jail when I have kids to feed and a wife to provide for. It's more difficult for me to be willing to be martyred when I have a wife and children. And so there is a natural trouble in the flesh in a troubled time to getting married and to having children in that I will be more hesitant to be willing to face the persecution that might be required of me of the Lord. But there's a natural implication to this text as well. It's more difficult for me to devote my full time and money to the work of God when I have a family that needs my time and money. And while we would rightly understand raising a godly family to be God's work, right? This is, this is God's work. The posterity, uh, uh, continuing the legacy, raising up the next generation as unto the Lord. This is the Lord's work. The idea that by being single, I can have flexibility to do more for God is a valid idea. Paul goes on then to warn about the fact that among many believers throughout history, doing what is right has meant has had to mean placing one's love and loyalty to God above that of his family. Indeed, Jesus would often say that no man can come after him who has not first left family and houses and lands and mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers for his sake. Why? Because sometimes that is what is asked of us. To be willing to make decisions for God as if I did not have a family. And what I mean by that is whether I have a family or not, the situation calls for the same decision. It's just going to be harder because I have a family. But the man with the family will have a harder time with this decision. So Paul goes on in verses 29 to 31 to say this. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as they that have none. They that weep as though they wept not. They that rejoice as though they rejoice not. And they that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world passeth away. Paul says that because time is short, as Paul was looking to the end of all things, the the return of the Lord is imminent. It could happen at any moment. Paul says that there is coming a time when even those with wives must act and decide as if they did not. That they that weep as though they wept not, rejoices, rejoice not, and and it goes through by, possess not, using this world as not abusing this world. There are times when all that we know, understand, all that we love is stripped away from our reality and we live in, in, in a new reality. And as believers, we are called to live forever in a state of readiness that if the day called for us to lose all that we had materially for the Lord, that we'd be ready to do it. Now, this is the opposite of the love of money. The love of money says, I am going to pursue the material. Paul says, we need to have a ready mindset That if tomorrow we were asked through persecution or through whatever it might be, through distress or through difficulty, if we were asked to lose all that we had on this earth to maintain the distinctives for the Lord, we need to be ready to make that decision. This is the capacity to use the things of this world without becoming so deeply connected to them that they override our loyalty for the things above. To use the world without abusing the world. So I have a family. Have kids. Make money to care for these children. 
have cars, have a house, have things, enjoy these things, but I must never live for these things. I must never live for these things. And if at any time, at any moment, they were to be stripped away or they needed to be yielded for the cause of the Lord, I need to be ready at that moment to yield them. And that does not just mean my car and my house. That means my family. That's the testimony of Job, is it not? As I prayed earlier, Job had lost all that he had. Not, not yet his health. Still had his wife as well. And one servant from each locale. And he falls down upon the ground and he, he rends his clothes and he shaves his head and then he worships. And he says, Naked came out, came out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a rich man who used the world without abusing the world. There's a rich man who, though he loved the things he had and thanked God for them and had much, one of the wealthiest men in the East. Yet for all of that, he kept a distance in his heart between himself and the things he had so that if the Lord asked for them, he could have them and Job would maintain his loyalty to the Lord using the blessings and joys of this world without abusing them. That's what our whole Ecclesiastes series was on that we went through last year. Don't be devoted to the material and the temporal. Be devoted to the spiritual. And if you can use the temporal things of this world and you can enjoy those things as you serve the Lord, all the better. Praise God for that. And if you earn a lot of money, all the better. Praise God for that. And if you can live in this prosperity and blessing upon this earth and still remain loyal to the principles of the Lord, God be praised. But the moment a love or a desire or a compulsion towards something material clouds your loyalty to the spiritual, you are in a place of temptation. You have become one who is being tempted with the love of money. And they that will be rich fall into temptations and a snare. You can be the poorest person and be the one who will be rich. That falls into temptation and a snare. You can have the multimillionaire over here who has learned that the things are the Lord's and not be struggling with that temptation. And at the same time, you can have absolutely nothing, but you will be rich. You want it. You crave it. And you're falling into the temptation and, and, and the snare. This is not about what you have. This is about the disposition of your heart toward what you have. And when we make that choice to choose the material over the spiritual, we are in the wrong place. Because, Paul tells us, the fashion of this world passeth away. It's all going to burn up anyway. And all that will be left is spiritual. So Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you will be rich, it's a heart thing. You are setting yourself up for a temptation and a snare that drown men in destruction and perdition. If you lay up your treasure in heaven, it's incorruptible.
This is the conflict. This is that tension I was speaking about between the Christian and the things of this world. How much can I pursue money, treasures, the things of this life before my heart becomes invested in them to the detriment of my investment in the spiritual? And you know what? I can't answer this question for you any more than you can answer this question for me. Because everyone's heart is in a different place on this. But I know this. If we will dedicate our hearts to treasuring above all things, the things which are to come, laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, our actions might change. It might change some of us. It might change the lifestyles of some of us. Some of us, it might not. Some of us might be able to maintain the things that we have. We had no loyalty to them and we can live with them without loyalty to them. Others of us might be able to say, you know what? Anytime I get these things, my heart is drawn to them and I just have to not have them. I just have to sell out, (laughs) literally sell, uh, in order to live outside of this temptation and this snare. Depending on who you are, depending on your propensities, depending on the sins that you struggle with, because we all struggle with different propensities, different sins that, that one person struggles with stealing, another person has never had that problem in their life. One person struggles with lust, another person hasn't had the problem. We all struggle with sin, but we all have different struggles in our lives. So our, our actions might change, our actions might not change, but I can tell you this, if we will dedicate our hearts to treasuring the things above, our perspective on life will change. The degree to which we care about what others think about us will change. Keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up some sort of appearance, the priorities of our life, these things will change. And it will fundamentally alter the way we live, even if we still live lavishly or if we don't live lavishly. God help it to be so. That was money. Let's talk giving. This is where we're going here. Point number one, principle number one about giving. Giving is about God. These points hit closer to the actual point of the text in Luke, if you're, if you're uh, uh, you know, as we're studying this evening, if you're there. There are many benefits to giving. Indeed, Acts chapter 20, verse 35 tells us it's more blessed to give than to receive. To this end, we understand that there is a principle of giving that we would call common grace, whereby, whether a man gives as unto the Lord or not, every man feels the blessing of giving. To whatever degree a man invests in others, there is a blessing. And this for two primary reasons. First, because it is, simply put, it's built into us by God, as with every element of God's design in this world, when it's working as God has designed it, there's a natural joy. So when we give as God has designed us to do, there's a natural joy that comes from that giving because that's how God has built us. If you've ever, if you've ever contrasted receiving gifts to giving gifts in a, in a real way, you'll find, and children believe this to be true, you'll find that there's so much more joy in giving than receiving. There's so much more joy in giving and receiving. It's just built into us. This is why rich people give a lot of money away. They're looking for something to make the wealth worth it. And so many rich people are are, are very philanthropic because it, it makes them feel good. Second, and this is important as well, giving gets our minds off of ourselves. When people are struggling... Sometimes it's with a sin or maybe it's with uh, frustrations or, or, or sorrow or depression or anxiety in their own lives. One of the, the things that I always look for in their life is how much they're investing in others. 
Because a lot of times when a person starts to feel these sorts of feelings, they turn inward and they start to think about themselves more and more and more, which is the absolute worst thing you can do when you're starting to get upset or depressed or angry or any of those things. The best thing to do is to turn outward, to look towards others, because again, there's a natural idea of when I take my mind off of myself and I put it on others, I'm a happier person. It's counter to the sin nature that's inside of us, but it's built into us by the design of God. So there are these natural benefits, right? There's these natural benefits to giving that are well outside of whether or not I give to God. Obviously, most of the the wealthy people that give uh, heaps and heaps of money to other people in this world are not doing it for God's sake, right? They're not doing it uh, to bless the Lord or to worship the Lord. They're doing it for their own sake. And there is something to that. There's something to be said for the natural blessings that come from giving. But in a manner of speaking, they're still self-serving, right? There's this self-serving design in that, that they're trying to make themselves feel better. It feels good to give, those sorts of things. They're taking their minds off themselves because they feel better about themselves when they do that. But when we dig down to the next layer, when once the spiritual is introduced, giving becomes something else altogether. Giving becomes worship. Giving becomes worship. It becomes a way to show God how much He is worth by what we give. Now, we know that giving in itself is not the essence of worship, but rather an extension of worship. The essence of worship is something else altogether, which we'll talk about in our final point tonight. Instead, giving is an extension of worship. It says that God is worth enough to me, His worth rests above my worth, His honor rests above my comfort, and to this end, I am going to give of what I have to the furtherance of His ministry on this earth at my expense to bless Him. We know the Lord does not need our money, that He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, all of uh, these concepts, and yet for all that the Lord does not need our money, He uses it, and He blesses us in the process. This woman in Luke 21 was giving to what? She was giving to the operation of the temple. It was an Old Testament expectation. It's a New Testament expectation as well that that the the people of God would give to the operation of of the house of God. That the church would give, and most specifically to give to the needs of the ministers. I, I've got this slide up with 1 Corinthians 9.11 and Galatians 6.6 6 on it. Both of these in the context of supporting God's ministers. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 9.11, If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing? If we shall reap your carnal things? Galatians 6.6, 6, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. But the point of giving to the church is not about giving to me, your pastor, It's about giving to God because God has asked it of you. And why do you you give to God is because he's asked it of you. And why has God asked it of you? Not because he needs you and he needs your money, but because he wants your worship. He wants you to show him his worth. And giving is a way that God has designed this to be done. So I give of my time to ministry, to church, to discipleship, because God is worthy of my time. I give of my abilities to ministry and to church because God is worthy of my abilities. I give of my money to ministry and to church and to others because God is worthy of my money. And if 
it is therefore a reflection of my love for God, then the manner in which I give becomes important, doesn't it? To this end, a second point on giving, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Valentine's Day was not long ago. If I had come home from the store with a bouquet of flowers, plopped them on my wife's lap and said, well, it's Valentine's Day, so I had to give these to you. Is the fact that I gave her flowers enough? Or is the gift kind of lost beneath the begrudging way that I gave it? I gave an illustration, I believe it was in Sunday school this morning. Uh, for those of you that were there, there's a similar idea that doesn't as much, it, it, it applies in a different way this evening. Why don't I go there? If I were to take that same concept of flowers, I'm sorry for the repeat for those of you in Sunday school, and I were to automate the process, and I were to say, well, my wife likes flowers, so I'm just going to automate the process and call the flower company and say, every two weeks, plop some flowers down on my wife's doorstep. And at first, my wife sees those flowers, and she says, wow, that's wonderful. And then she gets them two weeks later, and she says, oh, my husband's so sweet. And then she gets them two weeks later, and she's seeing the credit card just every day, the same day of the month, billed. And she starts to say, wait a minute here. My husband has automated this process, hasn't he? And I sit there and I say, yeah, isn't this great? I can give you flowers and not even have to think about you. Right? And my wife says, no, that's not great. Because, see, the, part, the, the big thing with flowers is not just that they look pretty on the table. The big thing about, I mean, if my wife just wanted the table to look pretty, she could go out and buy flowers for herself. The reason why the flowers are special is not just because they're flowers and she likes them. It's because it shows that I am thinking about her when I'm not around her, when she's not around me. And if I automate the process, then I'm effectively saying I can give her what she wants without even having to think about her, which is not what she wants. It's not what she wants. When we give to God, it's not about the money. It's about the fact that I'm thinking of my God. I am thinking of his commands. I am honoring his will. I am showing him his worth. I am sacrificing something that is mine to him, which he gave me anyway. So it's basically just giving him back a bit of what he gave to me anyway. And I am giving it to him because I love him. And because he's worthy. And I'm going to think about that. And it's going to be with purpose and intention. Deliberately and lovingly. Cheerfully. Not because I like seeing my bank account go down. But because I know that God's in control of that bank account anyway. And if I'm a good steward of it, I can give to him and he can take care of that stuff. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is writing to the church asking for money. And he's not asking for money for himself or for other ministers. He's not asking for money uh, for, for, for just the continuation of his, of his goals. He's asking for money for the people of the churches in Judea who are under deep persecution for their faith. And they were living in poverty. They had lost their jobs. Many of them had lost their families because of the faith. And Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7, But this I say, 
He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful, cheerful giver. I, I, I wish I could continue to read in this passage tonight. I'm not going to for sake of time. He goes on to say that God is able to abound to us in all of our needs. He's able to abound He's able to abound us in all of our needs. That's, that's not the issue here. The issue is not, well, God, if I give to you, I'm not going to have any money left. That's, that's not an issue to God. Money is not an issue to God. It really isn't. This church, this church, if, 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 if people come, if people go, if God wants us to have money, we'll have money. And if you've seen our general budget lately, you know that that's the case. If God wants us to have money, we'll have money. That's not, a, that's not a problem to God. If God wants your family to have money, your family will have money. That's not, that's not an issue to God. God wants your worship. God wants it. He wants it. He craves it. And he's worthy of it. He's jealous for it. He deserves it. If the people of Corinth had given grudgingly to the needs of the saints, their need still would have been met, right? People of Corinth were wealthy people. Paul had also gone to Thessalonica as well as many other places asking for money. All the time he'd been bragging about how much Corinth was going to give. He tells them that. He says, I've been bragging about you, so don't, don't screw this one up. You better live up to the bragging I've, 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 I've done for you. He put some pressure on them to give. By the way, that's why we do things as we do in this church. Regular giving goes in the box. That's between you and God. Whatever. It comes, it doesn't. That's God's business and that's between you and God and your worship and God. But when we give to missionaries and evangelists, we pass around a basket. Why? There's a little extra expectation there. Folks, let's give. Let's give. I want you to give. Add a little pressure. Why? Well, Paul did it, so I feel like I can do it too. That's about it. Paul called them to a higher plane here. He called them to give cheerfully and purposefully, knowing and believing that God can abound unto them to the degree that they abound unto him. That, that God can abound unto them to the degree that they abound unto him. God doesn't demand your money. He does not demand your time. He does not demand your abilities any more than he demands your love. But he's worthy of them all, isn't he? The testimony of the whole of Scripture is that to whatever degree you give willingly and cheerfully, God will respond in kind. And when we give this way, it's called worship. It's worship. Next. We're almost there. Two more points. God honors a sacrificial giver. We work our way even closer to the actual point of Luke 21, verses 1 through 4 here. We've kind of danced around the point throughout as we've looked at other principles. God loves sacrificial giving. There are people who can give very impressive amounts of money, meet entire needs without ever having to sacrifice anything. There are other people for whom every dollar they give is a legitimate sacrifice of something. There are people who have plenty of time and to give a little something to the church is no problem. There are other people who, to give some time to the church, is a legitimate sacrifice. There are some people who have capacity and ability in spades. 
And so to give a little bit of their abilities to the church, they could come up here and they could sing a solo and it wouldn't even be a problem. And they the songs and whatnot, no preparation needed, whatever. Uh, you can just ask me today and I'll have it ready. There are other people who really have put in the time and the effort to become ready for something. Not all giving is financial. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 15 that he would very gladly spend and be spent for the church. Paul served God with his body as much as with his spirit, did he not? the end of his life, it was not, he was not just a poor man. He was a, a physically, physically tired man. He'd been through some stuff. Stoned, shipwrecked. He'd been through a few things. Paul gave himself to be torn and to be beaten and to be bruised for the sake of the gospel. He yielded a family for the sake of the gospel. And whether we speak of financial giving or time or physical gifts, God honors sacrifices. And let me be clear about something. We're not speaking about sacrifice of other biblical obligations here. God does not honor the pastor who gives up raising the family he already has to pour himself into ministry. That's called neglect. God doesn't honor that. I'm not going to say, well, I'm going to abandon my family in order to pursue the ministry because it's the ministry. That's, that's not, that's poor stewardship of what I have. However, if there, were to a pastor, if there was a pastor who would say, in order to give more time to the ministry, I'm going to give up having a family, though I desire such a thing, that, that's a sacrifice. You see, I hope you see the difference between those two. But when we give up, when we give sacrificially, yielding the necessities of the flesh for the service to God, God's pleased. And this is the whole spirit behind fasting, is it not? The whole spirit behind fasting is that I am purposefully yielding the thing which my body is craving, which is food, the thing which my body needs in order to function, which is food, in order to focus upon the necessity of the spiritual. This is the call of ministry, to purposefully yield the blessings of a career and the, the things that come with that for the necessity of a vocation. And such is the spirit of giving in every way in the church. Once again, I caution you about the mindset. It is not, well, I'm going to honor the Lord by giving to the church, so I guess I won't pay the electric bill that I used last month, all the electricity I used last month, in order to bless the missionary. This is, this is called stealing, right? This is not called sacrificing. If I've already used the electricity, and I'm not paying the bill for the electricity I've already used in order to give to a missionary, I'm, I'm breaching a, 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 an agreement I've already made, which is I'm going to use this electricity and then you're going to bill me for it in order to do something in the name of the Lord, that, that's, that, that's not honoring the Lord. But maybe, maybe we just change our mindset a little bit to this. I want to honor the Lord by giving to the church, so I'm going to shut down every electronic device I have for the month, and then I'm going to give the difference of last month's bill and this month's bill to the Lord. A slight different change there, but now I've sacrificed something, right? I've shut down every electronic device in my house, to save electricity so that at the end of the month I can give the Lord of, uh, of that surplus. A slightly different mindset. This is not stealing. This is giving something up in order to give something to God. And God honors that. We are in what the liturgical denominations call Lent right now. It's the 40 weekday period where they, in these religious circles, prepare for Easter, Resurrection Sunday, by... Um, 
technically fasting and penitence. I don't know too many that observe Lent that have any fasting or penitence involved. Uh, They generally give something up for Lent as an exercise in worship. That's what it's intended to be, um, though they don't necessarily give of the surplus to the Lord by custom. Unfortunately, uh, the way that Lent has gone gives us a wonderful picture of how mankind can corrupt something. So Lent today has been twisted quite dramatically. Instead of, I'm sacrificing something unto the Lord to give my time to prayer and to to piety, they say, I'm going to give up a sin or a bad habit, but only for 40 days, something that God doesn't want me to do anyway. I'm going to give it up in the name of God, but only for 40 days. And by the way, Fat Tuesday that comes before is, is going to be the day where I gorge on that sin in order that I can be without that sin for 40 days in order to go back to that sin at the end. That doesn't please the Lord, right? If you want to please the Lord, get rid of the sin. Now, others, they give up things that they rely upon. It's not a sinful thing, right? Some give up coffee or whatever they might do. Um, And so they benefit from the discipline. But they don't fulfill the fasting idea of replacing that which they have given up with a spiritual exercise in prayer or in piety. And so they make the time rather spiritually fruitless. If I don't replace, if, if when I'm fasting, I don't replace my eating times and I don't replace, replace my cravings with going to the Lord and devoting my, that time unto the Lord, then I'm missing in a very important part of the fasting process. There's a small group which perform this ritual with a right heart, and what they're doing then is they are replacing something that they gave up physically with spiritual discipline. And so they receive true spiritual benefit. The Lord honors that. He will. And while we as, as Baptists don't participate in Lent, the idea in its purest form, not in what it has become in most circles, but the idea in its purest form is, is the very principle that we're talking about here. We're talking about giving of the things of this life to God, yielding the things of this life, for the, yielding the material for the spiritual, instead of spending money to go out to eat, eating at home and giving that money to the Lord. And maybe this should be an exercise every once in a while where you all want to go out to eat. And you've got that idea and you say, hey, how about this time? It doesn't have to be every time, but how about this time? We decide where we would have gone. We decide generally how much we would have spent. We go home and we microwave something. And then we take the money that we would have spent on that restaurant and we give it to a missionary. That's worship. Selling a a toy, maybe a child, even an adult and giving the proceeds to a missionary. These things honor the Lord, and where we honor the Lord, the Lord honors us. And now I want to dig one level deeper still. I told you we were going to get to the the deepest philosophical foundation of worship, and that's our final point this evening. Finally, on worship, true worship costs something. To the worshiper. True worship costs something. Jesus looked at this widow woman on that day. This is really where this text goes. He looked at that widow woman on that day and he said, This woman has cast in more than they all. He wasn't looking at direct numbers, he was looking at percentages. These rich people gave, you know, if they were doing a tithe, 10% of their surplus. They gave 10% of what they had when they could probably live on 10% of what they brought in. This widow woman had no surplus, which means the amount that she gave of her living 
unto the Lord was 100%. All that she had. Maybe that woman did not eat that day because of what she gave to the temple. Maybe. Where does the power come from to give cheerfully and sacrificially unto the Lord? It comes from a heart of worship, of showing God His worth. True worship drives much deeper than just the temporal. Giving of temporal things, of time and ability and money. There are the overflow of something, true worship, it's the overflow of something much deeper, much more important. And the deeper thing is giving of yourself. Say, Pastor, don't get all weird on me. I'm not getting weird on you here. God doesn't need your money, right? God doesn't need your voice. God doesn't need your time. God wants these because they are the natural overflow of the fact that you are God's. I am God's, so it's His anyway. It's his money, it's his time, it's his abilities. So the idea of pastor coming out up to me and saying, hey, can you use some of that for the church? Of course I can. Not because God needs me, but because God has the right to me. God has the right to me. God wants your love. God wants you to yield your right to be the master and guardian of your own choices. He doesn't want you to give them to some church or to some pastor. He wants you to lay them at his feet. David said in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it, as he's confessing his sin with Bathsheba unto the Lord. Thou, desirest not, uh, thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken, uh, excuse me, and a, uh, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. David writes these words in his great confession of God, as I mentioned, after the murder of Uriah the Hittite and the adultery with his wife Bathsheba. And while the prescription for such sin in Israel, as with every sin in Israel, was sacrificed unto the Lord, by the way, he, he should have died for that, right? And we've talked about that when we preached through First and Second Samuel. David acknowledges that what God is looking for is not explicitly the burnt offering, not explicitly the sacrifice, rather the heart behind it is what God wants. When David brings a burnt offering, it pleases the Lord, but only by this standard, only by the standard that this external act of bringing a burnt offering, of burning an animal, was reflective of an internally broken spirit and a contrite heart. The point here, God does not want you to give your money God wants the gift of monies to be the overflow of your love for him. God does not just want you to give your time. God wants the gift of your time to be an overflow of your love for him. It's a fundamental transformation of the way we think about the things that we have in this life, using the world, not abusing this world. And this because true worship always costs nothing, something. If it costs nothing, it's not true worship might cause you to think about God. God might use you to bless others, but worship costs something. And I want to give you an example of this from the scriptures. I preached it when we were there. David coming towards the end of his life, toward the end of his reign, and he's compelled to rebel against the Lord by numbering the people. 
He numbers the people, and for this transgression, God gives David a choice of curses, and David chooses uh, the curse that for three days the people would be plagued. A pestilence would break out among the people. The consequence uh, which David chose to maximize the possibility for God's mercy upon him. And the Bible says this, in this plague, 70,000 men in Israel died. And David is looking at, at all of these people who are dying and, and he is distraught and he is heartbroken. And as it progresses, David is begging the Lord for mercy to stay his hand and God commands him to rear up an altar on the threshing floor of Aruna, who was a Jebusite, which, by the way, he lived where the, where the temple would eventually be built. And so David comes to Aruna, the Jebusite, and he asks, may I buy this land from you? And this is where we pick up. And we pick up in 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 21. And Aruna said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Aruna said unto David, Let, the lord, let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt offering, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for wood. And all these things did Aruna, as a king, give unto the king. He says, you can have it all. You can have the threshing floor. You can have the instruments. You can have the oxen. You don't have to buy them from me. Notice David's response. Oh, he continues for a moment. The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Aruna, Nay, no, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Notice this. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which did cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David says, I will not offer unto the Lord a burnt offering of something that was given to me, of something that cost me nothing. This is not worship. If it doesn't cost me anything, I need to offer unto the Lord worship. He needs my sacrifice. It must cost me something. It does not honor God if the sacrifice of an animal was not preceded by the sacrifice of myself in some way to him. True worship costs something to the worshiper. And this is one of the great problems of our age. Because we've decided as a church that we're going to come to God at our convenience. That we're going to come to God according to our own will, our own plans. As we have excess, excess time, excess money, excess of this, excess of that. That's when God will receive it. He'll receive of our excess. Assuming that God will accept it simply because we're bringing it. Because the things that we bring are valuable to God as an extension of the heart with which we bring them. If we are unwilling to go out of our way to honor the God of all flesh, then why should we ever expect him to go out of his way to honor us? Jesus was sitting in the temple watching the many go by giving money in the treasury. Many rich men gave a portion of their abundance unto the Lord. Jesus did not scorn them. He did not spurn them. This was not a bad thing. Okay? This was not a bad thing that they did. We settled that early on. He only remarked that this widow woman, whose two mites were likely nearly inaudible, as she threw them in the treasury and they plunked at the bottom, could probably even barely hear it, 
He remarked not because her gift was of high cost monetarily, but because her gift was very costly. It wasn't of high cost, but it was very costly. To whatever degree God's people can give of themselves, praise God. Some at high cost, some perhaps low cost. But let the heart behind it always be a heart of true devotion. And know that God honors sacrifice. God honors the sacrifice of the heart. God honors the sacrifice of the body. I hope that this sermon is taken within the spirit with which it's giving. As I mentioned, because this topic always brings with it some level of tension, there's always the opportunity to misunderstand. To misunderstand the idea that because you do something regularly and as unto the Lord and yet it is not as costly as something else that God does not regard it. That's not what I was trying to tell you tonight. But what I'm telling you is that if we automate the process, if it costs us nothing, if it costs us not even a thought, then is it really honoring to the Lord? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.